to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 2, as we follow along with today's lesson. God is still desiring fruit, and so he said, well, my beloved son, I'll send him, surely they will reverence him. Now, here Jesus puts himself in a far different category than the prophets. There are always those today that would like to reduce Jesus to one of the prophets. Uh, In fact, uh, Mohammed uh, declares that Jesus was just one of the prophets. Uh, in a succession of prophets. And there are many people that buy into this line. He's just one of a succession of prophets that God had sent. But notice how Jesus puts himself in a far different category. Finally, he said, my beloved son, I will send him. Surely they will reverence him. But the husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance shall be ours. Now, Pilate knew when they brought Jesus before him that it was a conspiracy, that they were jealous of Jesus and fearful that Jesus would replace them. The high priest had said, don't you realize it's it's necessary that one should die in order that we might save our position in the nation? They, they said, behold, how all of the people are going after him. We're going to have to do something about this or else they're going to take away our, our power, our position. And so this basically, Jesus is sort of basically showing them what they have already determined that he is a threat to them, a danger to them, and thus he has to, in their mind, be destroyed, lest they lose their authority and their power and their hold over the people. This is the heir. Let's kill him. And then the vineyard will be ours we'll be able to continue our control and power over the nation. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? And of course, the Lord of the vineyard is God. He will come and will destroy the husbandmen, those religious leaders, and he will give the vineyard unto others. And then Jesus said, have you not read this scripture? 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner or the main cornerstone upon which the building was built or the keystone in the arch, stone rejected by the builders. And so that was a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. The stone, as promised by Moses, the rock, the stone declared by Daniel, not cut with hands, that shall smite the world governments, bringing them down and establishing a kingdom that will never end. The stone, though, that was rejected by the builders, by the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And it has become, and he has become, the headstone of the corner. Now, when Peter was standing before the council, these same men, and beside him was John and the lame man that all of his life had been lame and was a notable beggar who was at the temple begging from people who went in. And he's standing there with them whole. And the chief counsel asked him, by what name or by what power did you do this miracle to this lame man? How did you do this? What power? What name? And Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, said, You men of Israel, if we are examined this day because of a good deed, if we're being judged, if we're on trial today, we've been arrested, we're here on trial because of the good deed. This lame man is walking. He, he basically was saying, Don't you think that's a rather lame charge? I mean, the guy's walking. What's your problem, you know? But if you really want to know, the God of our fathers has honored his son Jesus. And it is, you know, he, he pointed them and he said, this is the stone that was set of not of you builders. Doing, you know, remember that one? Boy, I mean, he's cutting right through. Because... They had heard Jesus say, haven't you read this scripture? And now Peter's reminding them of the very same scripture. The stone which was rejected by the builders has become the chief cornerstone. And so they <laughs> sought to arrest Jesus at that point, but they feared the people. For they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. They got the point of the parable. They realized, hey, he's aiming at us. So they got together and they said, look, we've got to do something to take away his popularity among the people. We've got to turn the people against him. We've got to get rid of him. And so they were figuring out how they could uh, catch him and, and cause him to say things that would turn the people against him. And so they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words, to trap him, make him say something 
that would make him unpopular. And then when they were come, they said unto him, and listen to this buttery stuff, Master, we know that you are true, and you don't care for man, and you don't regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. In other words, we know you're a straight shooter. We know that you don't fear man. I mean, you speak the truth and you don't care who it hits. You're straight. Tell us. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? They figure they've got a catch-22. If he says it is lawful, you should pay your taxes to Caesar, then the people will all turn against him. The Roman government, in establishing its rule over the earth, where a nation would work together in cooperation with Rome, the nation was left fairly independent. And during the reign of Herod the Great, uh, the nation of Israel was uh, allowed many freedoms because of the favor that Herod the Great had with Rome. Upon his death, the nation was divided to his three sons. Archelaus had the southern portion, where is Jerusalem, Judea. Antipas had, of course, the area up in the Galilee region. And Philippi had the region in the far north up towards Syria. Now, Archelaus was, Antipas and, and Philippi were, they, they worked together with Rome, they did all right. But Archelaus uh, was a poor leader, poor ruler. And under him there came an insurrection against Rome he wasn't powerful enough to hold it down. And so the portion that Archelaus ruled became a Roman province. That is, they sent a Roman procurator to rule over the area. And there were then Roman soldiers stationed there to keep order and to keep law. So such was the case there at this time it was a place that was under the Roman authority and law, and the Romans taxed the people 10% of their grain, 20% of their wine. Really, when you look at that, the taxation isn't bad compared to what we pay. <laughs> and then they had what they called the poll tax. That was the tax that you paid for just the right of living. It was reasonable, though. It was only a denarius, uh, which is a, you know, a couple of dollars a year. Now, when people are living in an area where they are provided services by the government, taxation is proper. And we are told that we are to pay taxes. Honor to whom honor is due and tribute or taxes to whom taxes are due. 
You see, the fact that you can go into the bathroom and turn on a faucet and wash your hands, that running water is provided by the government. There's got to be some way to pay for it. You can turn on the lights. Uh, These things that we enjoy, the benefits that we have, they collect your trash once a week. Uh, What a mess things would be if if we didn't have the trash collections, if we didn't have the uh, sewage plants and, and all of these things that have been developed by the government to make life easier for us. So there are certain obligations to the government, taxes, to whom taxes are due. But the Jews rebelled against taxes to Rome, especially did they hate this denarius that they had to pay the poll tax, just the right to live. I have a right to live without Rome, paying Rome for that right, you know. And that was the one that galled them especially. So is it lawful for us to pay taxes or not? You're a straight shooter, tell us. If Jesus says, no, it's not lawful, that's an unlawful tax, then they'll run right down to the Roman headquarters and say, hey, we've got a tax revolt going on down the street, you know. And and they would have had Jesus arrested by the Roman government. So what can he say? Either way, he's wrong. So Jesus said, give me a denarius, one of your little coins that you pay your poll tax with. Give me a denarius. So they gave him a penny. Interesting, he didn't have one, isn't it? For those who say that he wore designer clothes and was so wealthy and all this kind of stuff. Interesting, he had to borrow a denarius to make a point. And he held it up to them and he said, whose image is that on there? And of course, the image was Caesar's. And he said, that's Caesar. Flip the coin back to him and said, okay, if it's Caesar's, Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. In other words, there's a certain obligation that we do have to government, but then there's a greater obligation that we have to God, giving unto God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Our very existence, our very lives. As uh, Daniel said to Belshazzar in his drunken state, the very God in whose hand your breath is, you have not glorified. And so we should give to God what is God's, the glory, the praise, the respect, the reverence, the honor, because he is our creator and he has, we really are his. Then came some of the Sadducees, Now, the high priest was a Sadducee, and most of the priesthood were Sadducees. These were men who did not really follow the oral traditions, as did the Pharisees. They weren't interested in the Mishnah or uh, the the oral traditions. In fact, they pretty much held only to the Pentateuch, the first five books. They even had questions on on the rest of the books of the Old Testament, but they held that the first five books were inspired. And because in the first five books, the books of the Pentateuch, there was no mention of resurrection. 
They believed that when you died, that was it. It's all over. They did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in angels. They uh, did not believe in spirits. They were the humanist, the naturalist of the day. Interesting that they would be the religious leaders. They were the ones who were the husbandmen who were to be developing the fruit in the vineyard, the religious leaders, but here they were rationalist, humanist. And so they came to Jesus and they made up what I'm certain is a hypothetical case, unlikely that this would actually happen. Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die and he leaves his wife behind him and leaves no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. That's the Mosaic law. Actually, it was before the Mosaic law. You go back into the book of Genesis and, and Levi, you remember his son married Tamar. He died, and so the brother took Tamar, and, um, and, and he died. And so Levi had one more son, but he thought, oh, my, you know, uh, he's already killed off two of them. I don't know that I want my third son, you know. And, and, and so, uh, the, the, you know, it was back before the law, this situation with Levi. And then you also have the, the case of... Um, uh, there was another case, uh, Onan, uh, who refused to raise up uh, a seed to his dead brother. Uh, but it was incorporated in the Mosaic law. And uh, it's a very interesting law. Uh, there, uh, actually, if a, if a man died, uh, his brother was to take his wife and the first child would be uh, named after the dead brother to keep his family name alive in Israel. Uh, if uh, the man did not want to marry her, uh, he did have an out. He could come before the judges and he could present his case. He could say, look, this was my brother's wife. He died. I know I have an obligation to marry her, but I don't want to marry her. Gave my brother said, I don't want to be tied to that, you know. And so he would take off his sandal and hand it to her. And she would spit in his face. It's there under the law. Look it up. And then he was known as the man from whom the shoe was loosed. Sort of a dirty word. He wouldn't take care of family obligations. He wouldn't honor his dead brother. Deuteronomy chapter 25, you'll find this law uh, that they are referring to. So they made up this hypothetical case. Now there's a man and uh, he died. And so the brother took the wife and he died. The next brother took the wife and he died. The next brother took the wife until the seven brothers, the story of seven brothers, they all had her as a wife. Finally, the seventh died, no children. So in the resurrection, who gets her? I read somewhere, and this is awful, <laughs> that there was a tombstone, 
And, and on it it said, Side by side, here lie my wife and I. And when on that judgment morn, when the skies are filled with Gabriel's horn, if she stands up, I'm lying still. <laughs> In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You might say, who wants her? Now, they're, they're trying to create a case in which shows the ludicrousy of the idea of resurrection. In other words, if there's a resurrection dead, there's going to be all kinds of problems. It's, it's sort of ludicrous, this idea of resurrection. And they're trying to point that out. And so Jesus answering them said unto them, do you, do you not therefore err because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? They erred in two points. You don't know the scriptures. Number two, you don't know the power of God. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Now, marriage today is ordained by God, a relationship in which two persons enter into the deepest, the most intimate, and the most abiding relationship that we can experience on the human level. The two become one. It's ordained by God. It is a beautiful, close bond. God has intended that through marriage, children be brought into the world into a loving, rich, secure environment. But man has messed things up. But when you have a good marriage, there's nothing better. It's the closest thing probably to heaven on earth you can experience, a good marriage. And there are many people, and I've actually had people say, well, if he can't be my husband in heaven, I don't want to go to heaven. Well, that's sort of foolish because consider the alternative. You know, he won't be your husband there. <laughs> but I won't be happy, you know. You do err because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. The relationships that we will have in heaven will exceed even those of our marriage relationships here. Heaven is going to be such a glorious place. And, and just... I hath not seen, ear hath not heard. We've only gotten just glimpses. Little glimpses here and there. But it's so far beyond anything we'd ever hoped for or dreamed or could imagine. And so Jesus said, you do err. We'll be like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. And as touching the dead, now that's answering your question, but let's go on to your issue, you know, touching the dead. 
that they rise. You don't believe that the dead rise, but touching the dead that they do rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses? Again, that's all they would accept, the first five books. And so have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spoke unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, you greatly err. So he really put them down. And so the scribes came. And having heard them reasoning together and perceived that he had answered them well, they thought, wow, that's heavy. Didn't think about that one. They asked him, which is the first commandment of all? That is first in importance. What's the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all of the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Shema, they're in Deuteronomy. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And this is the first or primary commandment. The second is like it, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There are no other commandments greater than these. These are the greatest. First, your relationship with God, loving him supremely, loving him with everything you have, all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, your whole being. Second, your relationship with each other, loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, the first table of the law does deal, the first four commandments, with our relationship with God. But basically, they can be summed up in loving God fully and completely. The second six commandments have to do with our relationship with our fellow men. They can be summed up with just love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, you have said the truth. That's good. For there is one God, and there is none other beside he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's more meaningful than all of your burnt offerings or sacrifices. This is what, you know, you've got the heart of it. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that dared to ask him any question. That was sort of ended their questioning. But then Jesus went on to question them. And he said, while he taught there in the temple, how say the scribes that Messiah is the son of David? Now the word Christ is the Greek word, the anointed. 
And the word Mashiach in the Hebrew is again the anointed. They, they both mean the anointed. And the, the reference is to the fact that kings, when they were crowned as king, were anointed. They would pour the oil over the head, the anointing oil being anointed as king. So the Messiah would be God's anointed king. And thus in the Greek, the word Christos is the anointed. And thus acknowledging again, or it is the equivalent of the Hebrew uh, Mashiach or Messiah. And it is not his name. And, and many people think his name is Christ. Uh, his name is Jesus, but he is the Messiah, the anointed one. And so David, in speaking of the Messiah in Psalm 110, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit. Now notice Jesus attributes the words of David to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. We are told by Paul when he wrote to Timothy. And uh, when Peter was quoting from the Psalms, he said, David, by the mouth of the Holy Spirit, spake, saying. So the acknowledging of David being anointed by the Holy Spirit and his words being inspired words from God. So how is it that David himself, by the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So David called the Messiah his Lord. Then how is it that the Messiah is called the son of David? If he is the son of David, how is it that David called him Lord? In that society, it was a patriarch type of society society where the father ruled until he died. Jacob ruled over the family until his death. That was just the way the culture was. And no son would, or no father would ever call his son Lord. That was just so opposite to their whole uh, social order, to their culture. So Jesus is, is proposing a real problem to them. The Messiah was known. One of his names is Son of David. But how is it that David, by the Holy Spirit, called him Lord? My Lord. David, therefore, himself called him Lord. And whence is he then his son? Now, it stumped them, and the common people were glad. They thought, oh, yeah, you know. Nailed him again. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes who love to go in long clothing, love the salutations in the marketplaces. They love to wear these colorful robes. They love to sew on to the robe the broad phylacteries, the little tassels, Indicating, you know, the tassel of blue, indicating their spirituality. They, they loved to be recognized by the robes they wore. 
as religious men and some of the fancy types of robes and the colorful robes indicating the order that they have within the religious order itself. They love it. Jesus said, beware of them. They love to go with these robes, the long clothing. And they love the salutations in the marketplace as they walk through the marketplace, you know, with their robes that show how righteous and all they are. They love people saying, Rabbi, Rabbi, you know. And they love the chief seats in the synagogue, those seats that were down in the front that faced the people so that everyone could see them sitting there in front of the uh, ark in which the Torah was kept. They loved that position. Recognition as spiritual leaders. Several years ago, I spoke in a church in Sweden. And um, the, the, the platform was as high as the balcony. And on the platform were all these huge throne-like chairs. And the elders of the church all sat in these chairs, looking out at the congregation. It was sort of uncomfortable. You looked right in the balcony, right at the people in the balcony there. Others were looking up at you. But it's much like the synagogue where the scribes would sit in the front looking at the people. Here are the recognized spiritual men, you know. And they love it. They love the uppermost rooms at the feast, the more important places. They love the seating order at the feast, to be seated in the places of honor. Remember, Jesus said, when you're invited to a feast, don't look for that high place, but look for the low place. Better to sit in a low place and have them come and say, come on up here, you, you belong up here, rather than sit in the high place and say, oops, um, uh, we're sorry, but you're sitting in the wrong place, you know, you belong down the line. And which devour widows' houses They go around taking advantage of people. They write to the little widows on Social Security these letters of the tremendous emergency that their ministries are facing. And if you don't send money in right away, we don't know what we're going to do, how we'll survive. And so please use the enclosed envelope and make your check as generous as possible. Save this ministry that Satan is trying to destroy. We're trusting in you to save us, you know. And that's just their problem. They're not trusting the Lord. But here they they go around and for a pretense, they make long prayers. Jesus said that... uh, They think they will be heard for their much speaking. So there were repetitions. Their prayers were repetitious. Uh, He talks about, you know, vain repetition in prayer. Now, you don't talk to a friend in a vain repetition of sentences. (laughs) Your friends would think you're crazy. If you talk to them like many people talk to God. 
when you talk to a friend, you, you think about what you're saying. It's thought out. It's, um, it makes sense. And thus when we pray, you know, we are to think out our prayers. We're, we're to speak to God as we're speaking to a friend. But here these for a pretense will make these long prayers. Jesus said they will receive the greater damnation, taking advantage of people spiritually, putting on this pretense of spirituality, receiving a greater condemnation. There are degrees of punishment in hell. We'll get to that when we get to Luke chapter 12. Now, Jesus was with his disciples and they were near the treasury and they were beholding how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich putting in their money. Notice, they were noticing how they did it, how you give. And you can give with great ostentation. Jesus, uh, and I'm sure it was probably an exaggeration, but he said, when you give, don't be like the Pharisees who sound a trumpet before them. You know, they have the band going in front of them, blaring away on the trumpets and, you know, holding out your gift and dropping it in the treasure. You know, uh, drawing attention to yourself. Uh, he probably was speaking in a, in a hyperbole, but uh, yet here they were observing how they were giving with just, you know, the great uh, pomp and all and the wealthy people coming and, and giving. And there came a certain poor little widow She threw in two mites, which make a farthing. A farthing is a quarter of a cent, so uh, a mite is a quarter of a farthing, or an eighth of a cent. So she gave in, she put in about uh, a quarter of a cent. But Jesus called to him his disciples, and he said unto them, I'll tell you the truth. This poor little widow has cast in more than all of they which is cast into the treasury. All of these wealthy people, everything they put in, she's given more. For all of they did cast in of their abundance. It didn't cost them. They have more than enough. But she is cast in of her want. She cast in all that she had, even all of her living. So, really, it isn't the amount that you give to the Lord. It's the sacrifice that's involved. That's where real giving comes in when it becomes a sacrifice, when you're giving of your substance to the Lord. More than just giving out of the abundance that you have, true sacrificial giving is that which the Lord recognized as more than all the rest. Brings us to chapter 13, so read it over. Now, when I read through the chapter, as I read through, I first of all try to get in my mind the various events of the chapter and generally into my mind. And then as I continue to read it, those passages that seem to be a little difficult, I We'll look up commentaries on those passages. I will uh, 
use Strong's or Young's uh, concordance, and I will look up the Greek or the Hebrew, as the case may be, to maybe get a better understanding of a verse. And then I will ask myself, what does this say to me? How does this apply to my life today? Which of these scriptures really speak to me about my relationship with God, my relationship with Jesus Christ? What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about Jesus? And hopefully, because we are only going one chapter a week, I would hope that daily you would read chapter 13, that you'll try and put it in order in your mind, the sequence of events, put it in your mind in order so that you could list off the order of events of chapter 13. And then what has spoken to you the most? How does this apply to you today? What does it say to you? And really seek to, on your own, be fed by the Spirit of God, gaining insight and understanding into the Scriptures as the Spirit will become your personal tutor, as Jesus promised, so that you might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark's gospel is more or less an abbreviated version of the gospel. And in the 13th chapter, we find this uh, abbreviated version of what is often called the Olivet Discourse that was prompted by the disciples' questions concerning the signs of the destruction of the temple and the sign of the coming of the Lord and the end of the age. And so Jesus gave to his disciples signs that would indicate the time of the destruction of the temple. He gave to them signs of his coming again and of the end of this uh, age uh, of Gentile rule uh, that would precede, of course, the glorious kingdom age, uh, the uh, establishing of God's kingdom upon the earth. So Mark tells us as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Josephus probably gives us the best description of the temple. It is interesting that um, nothing really very much is made out of the greatness of the temple, its building. We do know that Jesus came to the temple. He, on two occasions, drove out uh, those that were merchandising and making it sort of a bazaar, uh, changing money and selling 
uh, sacrificial animals within the temple precincts. He did call it his father's house. Uh, he uh, did refer to uh, the uh, when the dis- when the uh, Pharisees were asking for a sign, he said, "Destroy this body, and in three days I or destroy this temple. In three days I will build it again." And they sort of made fun of the fact that they had been forty six years in the construction, and you say you're going to build it in three uh, days. And so he was talking. We are told of the temple of his body. According to Josephus, between the years 19 and 20 B.C., Herod had begun the construction of the temple. When he first made mention of his plans to build the temple, there was a negative reaction among the Jews. Some thought that he was just attempting to destroy the temple that had been built by Uh, Zerubbabel uh, when they returned from their captivity and uh, they thought that he would never finish the project of the new temple. So he gave a speech to the people and he more or less in the speech outlined his plan to build this tremendous monument. It would be greater than any building Uh, that existed. And of course, at that time, you had the great temples in Ephesus, the great temples in uh, Athens, Greece. Uh, But this was to exceed them all in glorious magnificence. He was wanting this to be the crowning achievement of his life. He wanted this to be the monument that would forever mark him in the annals of the history of man. This was to be his great building uh, and that in years to come, Herod the Great would always be remembered because of this vast temple complex that he built there in Jerusalem. To allay their fears that it would not be completed, He said that he would gather all of the materials before they would actually begin the project of building the temple. And the first thing they did, of course, was to enlarge the Temple Mount area by building this huge retaining wall. Uh, In the Tropian Valley, the retaining wall was some 250 feet uh, high above the bottom of the Tyropian Tyropian Valley. Uh, They had this massive bridge 50 feet wide that uh, came across the Tyropian Valley. Those in the upper city of Jerusalem could come across this massive uh, bridge of which part of it still exists to the present day. Uh, When you go to the Temple Mount area, uh, you will uh, go under uh, the uh, or go up to the western wall and into the gate to the left there and you'll see this tremendous arch in there which was one of the arches of this bridge that crossed the Tropian Valley some 300 feet long and the people in the upper part of Jerusalem could come across the bridge 
to the temple without going down into the valley and back up again. Uh, the top of the bridge was 250 feet above the valley floor. So uh, it's just absolutely uh, mind-boggling when you're there and you see the huge stones that they used just to build the bridge, the huge stones that they used to build this retaining wall uh, around the, uh, the southern part of the Temple Mount area and the eastern part in order to enlarge uh, the area of the temple courtyards and all. And, of course, it was not just the temple itself, but there were other, many other buildings built in conjunction with the temple. Uh, colonnades, porches, and uh, just magnificent buildings surrounding the temple. The temple itself, according to Josephus, was 120 cubits high, which would be about 180 feet, uh, which would be about the height of an 18-story building. So it was quite mammoth in size. According to Josephus, some of the stones that were used in the lower level of the building of the temple were 40 feet long and uh, 12 feet high and 18 feet thick. Some of the historians believe that he was guilty of hyperbole. That is sort of exaggerating it a bit. But uh, in uh, the excavations along the western wall, uh, the temple uh, mount area, uh, or the retaining wall, the western wall, up towards the fortress of Antonio, I stepped off one stone that was 47 feet long. Uh, I don't know the thickness of it, but was about six to seven feet high. Uh, it is estimated that it weighs somewhere around 160 to 180 tons. And so uh, Herod was really going to put it all into this temple. It was to be a monument unto Herod uh, throughout generations. God had other ideas. The disciple was remarking to Jesus about the stones, these huge stones that Herod used, and about the great building itself with its beautiful gates covered with plates of gold and uh, the golden grapes on the gates that glistened in the morning sunlight, uh, so much so that you really couldn't look at them. It was like looking at the sun, the reflection. And when the disciple was pointing out these huge, great buildings, the temple, the porticles, the colonnades, Jesus said unto them, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And that must have seemed to be one of the most impractical things that Jesus ever said. How in the world could anyone ever destroy such a magnificent structure 
such a huge structure as the temple. And yet here is this amazing prediction by Jesus. Not one stone will be left standing upon another. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the prophecy of the temple. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 12 through 13 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. More and more as things are developing in our world, do we see the necessity of God's people fasting and praying. Powers of darkness are in control of the world in which we live. There's an increased endeavor to limit and to restrict our liberties As Christians, the real power against these is prayer. God can do the work. God can move the mountains. And so I encourage you to spend more time in prayer. Less time in front of the television. More time seeking God. Praying. Fasting that we might see the hand of God at work even in this age. May the Lord be with you. Watch over and keep you in his life. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. I'd like to tell you about a book written by Chuck Smith entitled Living Water. In this book, Pastor Chuck explains how God has the power to change your life through His Holy Spirit. This book will help you to understand how the Holy Spirit works in your life, covering such topics as who is the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do, what are the gifts of the Spirit, and how should I respond? It's Pastor Chuck's desire that by God's grace and through this book, The Lord will develop in you a hunger and thirst for the things after the Spirit that will help you come into a deep and personal
personal relationship with Him so that your life will be transformed. To find out more and to read a book preview, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link to download Living Water by Chuck Smith. Or if you would like to order this book in print, call The Word for Today at 800-272-WORD. That's 800-272-9673.